Welcome to American Beauty. I'm Joanna Brooks, and this is a podcast about the beautiful but challenging work of democracy in our moment. Every episode, I focus in on a question or a concern raised by a listener like you about where we've been and where we're going, and I bring in experts, women, who can help us see more clearly, breathe more deeply, and get grounded for the work ahead. It's a conversation in three parts. I always vote, and I always will, but I'm worried about the impact and integrity of our votes. Emily Sokolov believes in voting, really, really believes in voting. She lives in Austin, Texas, and on the day we talk via Skype, it's raining. You know, we're having flooding flooding in Austin. It's been unbelievable, and... um, I'm I'm late coming home. I was driving in. It's it's beyond belief. It's biblical. Of course, Emily is not from Texas. She's from Brooklyn. She's a trained folklorist with expertise in both Mexican and Yiddish folk cultures. She's multilingual. She has gorgeous curly white hair. And to her, voting has always been something very important. Because I'm, I take my daughter now. My daughter, of course, is uh, 29 and about to um, get a master's on Thursday. So, I, I, yeah. But I remember bringing her with me into the voting booth from the time that she was born, and and it's, um, it's that kind of sense of a sacred duty uh, for somebody who is is pretty much secular, culturally Jewish, but pretty much not a theist. She's felt this way as long as she can remember. I do remember the Kennedy election. I remember when Johnson was running. And I remember um, when I was in, I guess it would be the equivalent of junior high, having like all of these buttons um, on this cape mm-hmm. that I wore with political buttons. But I was never the kind of person that wanted to become a delegate or wanted to become like really involved with a party per se. Right. Um uh, so you wanted remember, to be in the sacred space of voting. Yes. She doesn't know exactly the date or year when she cast her first vote, but she does remember viscerally how it felt. If you ask me to describe the inside of a of a mid-century voting booth in Borough Hall in Brooklyn, I could do that. But I we used to have um, these these great like univac machine looking booths that you would get into and you'd mm-hmm. move a big a big lever like an elevator operator in the old days and it would close a, a velvet curtain so it was kind of like a blackout booth and you'd have a a digital uh, a panel of buttons in front of you digital is actually in the old sense of digital right. uh, but i guess now it's analog and you'd actually physically move things and then when you moved back the lever, it would not only open the curtain, but it would register everything that you'd done inside the booth. And I think there was this amazing window on the outside of the booth, very Wizard of Oz-like, that would show your number would shift in wow. the odometer, and um, there would be a flash of 
some, it was a visual sign. There was no light involved. Um, wow. I, I remember the booth having kind of like a, like a piano light um, inside. So it was very, you know, there was something very magical and mysterious about going into that. And these are the things she thinks about as a voter registration and election protection volunteer, how voting feels and how that impacts civic engagement. We vote on these tablets and uh, I don't know what they do in California, but in Texas now you have a you have a tablet with this kind of wheel and arrow buttons and it's it's very confusing and I right. don't know how people that aren't computer literate, I mean, if you don't know how to basically work a computer, I don't know how you even do it. And I've actually helped people vote, um, uh, mostly because they spoke Spanish and didn't speak English. And so they needed help sort of maneuvering, uh, but also because of the strangeness of the technology. Um, and I wonder if it's, it, maybe it's, you know, the voting apparatus has evolved the way the automobile has evolved and right, right, you know, right. sort of understand how to fix things and how things worked in a very tactile way. And now you can't, it's, we have Sharpie it, markers, you know, we have Sharpie markers and paper ballots that are in folders that we carry into a cardboard booth and then we carry back and they put uh, in a big box. It's very tactile, but not, not, not digital, not digital. Yeah. Well, I love that. Because, you know, in, in third world countries, not only do you vote on paper and does everybody watch you actually put it into the slot of a boot, of a box, yep. but you also get your finger dyed. You get your thumb inked, yeah. Right. So, so you know, there's this kind of process of, of, of the, the visibility. Here what we get is a sticker that says right. I voted right. or right. In Texas, yo voté, you know. Yeah, yeah. Emily started volunteering years ago to help with voter registration. In Texas, you need to be uh, certified and you need to have a, a training. Um, so I've done that uh, for, for the years in Texas. I probably did it um, in the 90s when we lived in Texas. Um, I register people that I know are not going to vote for the progressives. I register... Um, I, 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 you know, my, my goal is to get as many people involved as possible. About a decade ago, she started doing a more specialized kind of work called election protection. It involves going into polling places and helping voters one by one resolve challenges that might come up. She worked in Pennsylvania in the 2004, 2008, and 2012 elections with my Spanish was able to help a Portuguese, an older Portuguese couple vote. And this was in the Rust Belt. I would go to Bethlehem, Reading and Allentown from New York city. And, um, basically ask people, were you able to vote when they came out of the voting booth? And this couple had not been able to vote and they were standing and they, they were holding a paper and they were saying, Carrie, Carrie, you know, they wanted, they wanted to vote for Carrie. Um, so I was able to go back in with them and help, um, adjudicate their process. Uh, there are all kinds of things that make it difficult for people that can't navigate the system easily to communicate in the voting environments. For November 2016, Emily was back in Texas. 
um, I kind of made it my business to try to work particularly with the disenfranchised. So I worked at a lot of homeless shelters at food pantries. Um, I worked in high schools and particularly in high school programs um, with non-traditional students, students that have been sort of back, you know, kind of bounced out of the academic track. I've, I, I, I tried to work with people that in some sense, consider themselves disenfranchised to re-enfranchise them. Now, of course, you don't know whether these people are going to actually end up voting. Um, but the in- important thing is the inclusiveness of the process. Emily has a unique, up-close working knowledge of the kinds of things that can derail the voting process when people show up at the polls. In election protection, I think that just having the personal authority to tell somebody who is saying, I'm sorry, your name is not on the list, or I'm sorry, um, we have an address problem or with where you lived before, or I'm sorry, you've moved and you're no longer, you know, your ID doesn't match, or it's to push past that and say, well, I'm sorry that that's what your records show. But in fact, I have a receipt in my wallet from when I was registered or I have, um, I voted before here and I want to speak to the judge because there's usually a judge at every polling place. Hmm. Um, so I think it's a question of entitlement, a sense of entitlement and a sense of pushing through that resistance. Um, when someone looks at you crossways and says, you're not on my list or um, our name, we have your name spelled this way and you're insisting it's spelled another way that those kind of those, you know, it, it takes a certain sense of um, ownership in that process right. to go beyond that and say, and if well, you already feel vulnerable or marginalized. You might not have the energy that day or the wherewithal. You might have fear, right? And that's where someone like you plays a role. You step in and you're the advocate. She also knows the barriers that keep people from just getting there. In many countries, voting day is a national holiday, not here. And that can make it tough for people who work long hours. It can also be tough for people who don't have a stable address or those who move frequently. Requirements for identification are another big barrier, especially when studies have shown that 11% of American citizens, about 20 million eligible voters, don't possess a state-issued ID. Those rates are even higher in communities of color. For the last election, I was very curious about this non this voter ID that you can get from the Department of Motor Vehicles, and so I I went through the process of getting one. And this is the this is the sort of supposedly easiest way to get some kind of identification um, if you don't have a driver's license if you don't have a passport, if you don't have all those things that are, in a sense, markers of a certain level of economic um, attainment. Uh, you wouldn't, if you, if you had no prospect of driving a car, you might let your learner's permit lapse or your driver's license lapse. Uh, and the same with a passport, if there is no, you know, no traveling in your future. So um, 
I sort of went through this process and you do need a birth certificate. You need something. If you've lost everything, if somebody like the people, for instance, I, I keep returning to the, the, the homeless, but if, if somebody has robbed all your stuff, which is something that I've heard a lot of, right, then you don't have the documentation that's going to enable you to get what you need and, and to be able to vote. So, um, you know, it took me I don't know, about five hours with all of the documentation to be able to get that card from the the Department of Motor Vehicles. So there's a hurdle right there. You need to have that. But perhaps the biggest barrier, the most significant barrier Emily finds, is something more fundamental. It's the broken relationships that constitute a lack of faith in democracy. I had a woman... And I came, I came to her house and I said, have you gotten to vote yet? And she said, I'm taking down my Halloween decorations. And I said, well, you know, you can vote right up there at the shrine, whatever center it is. And, you know, I'm, she said, I'm taking down my Halloween decorations. And I said, well, um, you know, I'm happy to give you a lift or come back at another time. The polls are open till seven. And, and she was like, she was taking down her Halloween decorations and there was nothing I could do. I wasn't in a position to get on a high horse and tell her that people had sacrificed their lives for her right to vote. Um, she was female. She was African-American. And I was just not about to go there. And, and, you know, but that's where it's at. I mean, if you, if you can't, if you don't see it as having, as being that important, and there are a lot of people that do not consider themselves enfranchised by their own, by their own decree. It's not a question of what's, you know, and, and that's, that's our problem. That's very problematic. The people that say my vote doesn't matter, or I've never voted. And sometimes the way we think about elections about how to get people to the polls, about how to make elections more safe, more secure, might actually hurt as much as they help. Last election season, mm-hmm. you know, in 2016, um, both major parties raised issues of the integrity of the vote. And on the one side, it was unsubstantiated, but very vocal allegations of massive voter fraud Right. With the implication that it was happening in immigrant communities. On the other side, there was a sort of micro data tech focus on, on three counties in the upper Midwest where Facebook ads had, um, mm. you know, influenced voter conduct or had mm-hmm. um, agitated certain subsets and, and swung the vote. Right. right. So on the one side, this very broad voter integrity allegation, and on the other side, a very, (laughs) (laughs) you know, geeky, micro-focused. Are you worried about Facebook, and are you worried about massive voter fraud? Are these the things that, as someone who works every day in the trenches, that ride on your mind? Well, I am worried about um, the sort of bean-counting, logarithm-driven approach to... um, electoral politics that that I'm seeing. I mean, you know, I think that there are there are a lot of um, there's a tendency, you know, on my own side of, uh, you know, 
the Democratic Party, for instance, to take a very sort of reductionist, um, mechanized, um, you know, just sort of what you're describing. It's a game. Um, I, I yeah. work to get out the vote. It's a game. And if we make it through our clipboards and make all these phone calls and right. these targets and numbers, and that's a way of rationalizing. But it sounds like you're pointing us to something much deeper. Absolutely. I, I You know, where you get somebody who's decided that the way to do things is simply door knocking and you know, cold calling. And that is the only thing to do. And that's the mm-hmm. thing that I, as a, as an activist, uh, election activist, enjoy doing the least. Mm-hmm. And that the people that, <laughs> I, that are the recipients of these actions enjoy having happened to them the least as yeah. any, of anything possible. So yes. And in terms of, I mean, look, in terms of social media in general and what its influence is, which is your other question about, you know, the, the Facebook phenomenon and the, um, the robo, uh, I can't remember what they're called anymore. The sort of, uh, bot, the, the bot, the bot driven content yeah, bot. from Russia exactly. right. to and, make people right. angry. Yeah. Right. All of that. I mean, we're very susceptible as human beings to all kinds of influences my counter to it and and also to the bean counting and and sort of data driven um approach is you know returning to that human touch the the, the piece of paper that gets dropped in a slot and to a real um grassroots based interactive model which um you know i mean that's how you're going to address these issues i i definitely in canvassing huh. door to door in latino neighborhoods heard but wait hillary wants you know to kill uh, babies in utero that are te- you know 9 months old and hillary you know so how mm-hmm. else are you going to counter those kinds of um uh attitudes without just be a sort of a it's much more laborious obviously than um having your your cell phone automatically text 20 people a day but it's it's certainly going to have a, a more of a long-term effect and it's going to have i think the more of a, a deeper a deep more deeply persuasive quality so so um, it's something about relationships rather than algorithms <laughs> something about it yes <laughs> kind of democratic in that way yes What's really at stake in the electoral process? Are we worrying about the wrong things? Beyond winning and losing, beyond data, bots, and cold calling, what really moves people to engage? And what derails engagement? What would it take to move the United States towards greater integrity in our elections? And what would it mean to restore what Emily describes as a sense of the sacred or the human touch? In part two, we'll take these questions to three women including an award-winning poet recognized as a fearless truth-teller who may change the way you see elections forever. This is American Beauty. I'm Joanna Brooks. Please stick with us. Subscribe, share, rate, and review today at iTunes. Follow us on Twitter and Insta at underscore Joanna Brooks. Check in at AmericanBeautyPodcast.com. Thanks to Rachel Taylor for sound production, K-Studio for brand design, and to all the women doing the work.